0: Hello
1: and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. Today we explore the world of Japan's gastronomy and its impact around the globe. Japan is rightly considered a superpower when it comes to cultural exports and its delicious culinary offerings play a huge role in boosting the nation's profile abroad. In this episode, we visit the places and speak to the trailblazers of Japanese drinking and dining beyond the country's own borders. We sit down with Erica Haig, the founder of London's first independent Japanese
2: sake bar, MOTO. Even the way the traditional sake cups are shaped, it's very small, which leads to frequent pouring. So again, it's that constant element of community that Japanese drinking culture very much emphasizes. Also in the program, we head to Copenhagen to meet Mads Baterfeld,
1: who is on a mission to introduce the nation to Edomai Sushi. Plus, we visit an authentic Japanese grocery store, Wajimaya, in Seattle. As I start to head down some of the dry good aisles, uh, just looking at
3: soy sauce alone is an entire row with, I couldn't even begin to count the number of varieties here of soy sauce.
1: And we explore how Japanese tea-making is brewing strong bilateral relationships in Slovenia. All that, here on The Menu, on Monaco Radio. For many people outside of Japan, the world of sake remains somewhat of an enigma. The drink, which is primarily made from fermented rice, is often only served at izakayas or sushi places and isn't a common choice of accompanying beverage in Western restaurants. However, in the UK, its fortunes as a drinks list option are rising, and that's partly due to the work of Erika Haig. Erika is a sake educator and sommelier who's dedicated to spotlighting the intricacies of Japanese drinking culture and spreading the word about it. Following her upbringing in Japan, Erica began her career as a wine sommelier but then decided to switch her focus to sake. She opened up the UK's first independent sake bar, Moto, in 2019 and has recently launched Komosu, an online platform showcasing the most premium varieties. This program's producer, Monica Lillis, sat down with Erica in the studio to find out more.
2: So because I'm half Japanese and I was born and raised in Japan, people always assume that I just saw sake growing up, so I naturally fell into sake. That's far from the truth. I saw my parents drinking beer when I shouldn't have been drinking alcohol as a teenager, but you know how things go. I also wasn't drinking sake. It was a lot later on when I was in the hospitality space. I thought I was going to become a wine sommelier. That was my passion, my calling. I saw that the WSET, the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, they were hosting sake courses. And because I'm half Japanese, I thought maybe down the line someone might ask me a question about sake. And I'd be a little embarrassed if I didn't know anything about Japan's national drink. Therefore, I took the course. And little did I know that was going to be my aha moment, my kind of light bulb moment. Learning about sake was kind of the key, the unlock for me to rediscovering my home country. I think that was truly why I knew from then onwards that sake needs to be my passion, my livelihood. And I wanted more and more people to discover sake and also discover Japan in the process like I did.
4: Yeah. And what was that like reconnecting with your heritage through sake? So you went away from home to study, but then you came back. To Japan so what was that like?
2: So I left Japan when I was 18 mm-hmm. and uh, all through my upbringing uh, I went to American school in Japan and these different types of international schools where I idolized the west so <laughs> I was living in Japan yet I wanted to wear what people abroad were wearing and eat what people mm-hmm. abroad were eating and through sake is when I truly understood by, you know, learning about different food cultures throughout Japan, different histories, different dialects even, just mm-hmm. all these different things. Just this interest that I didn't have before, and now I'm so proud of being Japanese and also whenever I go back to Japan, there's an added element of fun and excitement. Again, through sake, just going to different areas. While it's for work, I go to different sake breweries, connect with them. But also through it, I go to the different local temples. I see whatever it is that the local space has to offer. Those are the fun things now that I would never have dreamt of doing back before sake ignited this kind of appreciation for Japan. How
4: is Japanese drinking culture different from other drinking cultures?
2: I definitely think it's a lot more communal. It's truly a thing where people pour for each other. It's in a space where it's amongst colleagues or amongst family members. Of course, that definitely does happen abroad as well, but it's in an even more involved way even the way the traditional sake cups are shaped it's very small which leads to frequent pouring mm. so again it's that constant element of community that japanese drinking culture very much emphasizes it's also a lot more about food so i was quite surprised when i moved to london and people were you know ordering pint after pint at the pub <laughs> which is like really fun but you would not really see that in japan At the local izakaya, like Japanese pub culture, if you will, they require you to have like a little bit of food even and they give you some free food at the beginning. So food and drinks definitely go a lot more hand in hand, I think. So definitely that communal aspect and the food and drinks always being a pairing is something I see that's quite evident So tell me a little bit about your bar in London. When was that set up? So that was set up in November 2019. Okay. So So right before the pandemic, which was awful timing, but thankfully we're still open and running. Very proud to call ourselves the UK's first independent Japanese sake bar, shop and eatery. So... Yes, sake is the biggest part of our beverage portfolio, but we also have other Japanese craft beverages, including beer, spirits. We also do a wonderful cocktail program. All of our craft beverages are imported directly from producers throughout Japan that we have a direct relationship with. So the beverages you find at Moto, you can't find anywhere else in the UK, sometimes nowhere else outside of Japan, because some of these guys have never exported before. Mm -hmm. We also have a food offering. You could also take away our bottles. So it's like a shop, and we're located in Covent Garden. So hopefully, that's quite an inviting space for locals and tourists alike to get to explore all these new and different beverages from Japan. So, what was it
4: like opening this? You know, I guess it's pretty groundbreaking being the first ever dedicated
2: sake bar in London. So, tell me about that. What was it like? The motivation was quite selfish. I just wanted a place I could rock up and have a glass of sake (laughs) because before moto I do believe it was mostly at Japanese restaurants sometimes like you want to go grab a pint of beer or a glass of wine me personally at least I want to go and have a glass of sake so moto was the space for that but through it I'm so happy that it's attracted people who have really fallen for this beverage category and uh, we're quite blessed to have a lot of loyal customers that have returned back to us from day one. So I think we are quite an intimate space as well and we love to chat with the people who come in. So I did mention earlier how you know Japanese beverage drinking culture is a lot about community and I think we've really established that at Moto. So I think that's something that I'm quite happy about. I think just if you're talking over the last decade, and even four years ago since I've opened up Moto, the interest for sake has already been increasing rapidly. But moving forward, I think, again, if we start to take sake outside of Japan-related things and start pairing it with cuisines that people here naturally eat, environments that people love to go to, music venues, sports, so on and so forth. That's where sake will truly become a part of daily life, and I think very possible because sake, like any other beverage, has so many different aromas, flavors, textures. There's a drink for everyone. You know, it's mm. not like every sake will appeal to everyone, but like wine, right? It's mm. Not everyone loves a really rich tannin-heavy red wine. Mm. It's the same for sake, but. There is a sake for everyone. So I mm. think just getting that message across will be really critical to a lot of people understanding that this is a beverage, not just for Japanese people, but for everyone.
1: Danish chef Mads Batefeld is on a mission to introduce Copenhageners to authentic Edomai sushi. His restaurant, Sushi Anaba, in the city's Nordhaven district, is unlike any other sushi purveyor in Scandinavia. That's because of its focus on the classic version of Tokyo sushi, which uses only local seafood. There's no salmon and, heaven forbid, no mayonnaise or avocado. Its prices are a little different too. Monaco's Copenhagen correspondent Michael Booth, who happens to be the author of two books about Japanese food, went along to meet Mads and his Japanese colleague Machu Kojima to hear about the challenges of sourcing top-quality seafood and persuading the Danes to eat less popular ingredients. Michael started by asking him what made him choose the tougher, less well-trodden path of traditional Edomai sushi.
5: To show the Danes how much beautiful fish that we have around, that's one big thing. And just to show how it should be, that it should be simple, it should be a good quality of rice, it should be a good quality of uh, fish and wasabi. Yeah, we do it uh, We do it in the traditional Tokyo way. We use dark vinegar. Dark made, red uh, vi- vinegar. Yeah, dark red, yeah. It's uh, made from the lease of the sake production. And the one we use is from Hyogo and it's been uh, matured for seven years before they release it. And then we use a little bit of uh, Danish apple cider vinegar. Then we only use salt, no and, sugar at all. And you learned this in a top sushi restaurant in Ginza in Tokyo. Yes. When, when did you first go there? But I went to Japan first time back in 2010. I had a, a few uh, tours around after that. And to the restaurant at uh, Hakoku where I trained. It was 100% the, the simplicity. I'm trained in a, a French kitchen where you can you can always add on. And you want to add on, you want to put more f- deep flavors in the sauce, you want more time, more garlic, or like you built. And then uh, in the Japanese kitchen, you try to remove. But there's a reason why it takes
6: years and years and years to train to be an Edome sushi chef. And I wonder, explaining that to Danes and why they suddenly have to pay, uh, you know, 1700 kroner for their sushi instead of 350 kroner. Yeah. How did you go about doing that? Because it's, as you say, it looks simple, but it's not.
5: No, <laughs> that was also one of my biggest, uh, not issues but roaring points when I opened the restaurant because I knew that we we're gonna have a lot of these top food critics from Denmark. But for me, of course, I respect them, but I don't respect their opinion about sushi because obviously <laughs> they don't have any, they don't, uh, they don't have any knowledge about it. So why should they come to my restaurant and teach me? Of course, they give us good, uh, good critics. So it was okay. And, and, and how about the general public? Uh, I think the general public was. Uh, Very, very open, right? And uh, of course, in the start, we had a lot of guests who obviously been traveling to Japan and uh, had the understanding of how it should be. And we opened just before uh, Corona. So a lot of people that were supposed to travel went to to our restaurant instead of uh, to get the same, a little bit of the same feeling, a little bit of uh, being out of Copenhagen. And since then, we had uh, quite a lot of tourists who's coming now due to we're only serving uh, Scandinavian seafood instead of most restaurants in the, in the U.S. or even in uh, in England, uh, importing a lot of Japanese. Uh, so it's all locally sourced fish? Yeah, the only thing we have, uh, we have tuna from uh, from the south of Portugal. How about the tuna that's now swimming in the Ersund, just a few <laughs> yards away from where we're sitting? I think it's exciting with with the tuna in, uh, in our waters, but... We don't have the traditions. Again, we don't have the traditions to, to catch and eat raw tuna. Sushi scene in Copenhagen is still a bit rubbish. Mm. I
6: mean, maybe you can't say that, but I can.
5: No, it is 100%. Okay, you can <laughs> say <laughs> no, it. Is Are you a bit
6: disappointed that you haven't like paved a way, or maybe you're, you're just happy that you have your clientele here, but the rest of us, we're a bit disappointed that it's just still a bit crap.
5: Yeah. No, and I understand why it's crap, because it's a uh, very, very hard labor. These place who sells it for very very cheap money, of course, are maybe not paying the best money per hour and it's just using a bad product. It's and the it's only reason why you can make money on, on Sushi because either you pay the staff very, very bad or you're using a very, very bad product. It's it's not possible to to serve it for less money than we are. Because it's just taken we have four chefs working every day for fourteen hours to serve how many we serve we serve twenty four guests. Can I ask, does it make money? Yes, I do. it do. Uh, I think it's been very, very uh, important for me in the start that it needs to be a, a healthy project. The staff needs to be paid well. We need to keep our hours. And after that, we can see where, where can we develop.
6: And uh, so we're in the kitchen now. and I can see you have all the beautiful tableware that you would expect from a top sushi yarn in Tokyo. How Have you accumulated this? Where do you get your, your tableware from? <laughs> Everything is uh, selected uh, under trips. Oh, so it's all come in suitcases from yeah. Japan?
5: exactly, exactly. And the, after I was living there for a year, I brought 120 kilos back, uh, from everything, from like working jackets to ceramics to shoes to, of course, knives and uh, pots sake and pans. cups, sake yeah. bottles.
6: Out in the kitchen of Sushi Anaba, Mass Batterfield introduced me to Machu Kojima, his Japanese colleague. I asked him when he arrived in Denmark and his first impressions. I have to say, uh, Kojima san was the epitome of Japanese diplomacy and good manners, so I couldn't get him to say anything bad about the sushi scene in his adopted city.
7: Three, three and a
6: half years ago. And yes. when you first came to Denmark, mm-hmm. what did you think about Danish food and the Danes and Denmark? I think he just said that beautiful culture. Yes. Beautiful culture, also. Yes. Yeah.
8: yeah. I like it. Yes. What,
6: what about how they. Cook fish in Denmark.
8: Herring.
7: Uh-huh. You like it? Yes, I like it very much. The pickled herring. Yes, yeah, pickled herring. But of course, Japan have a uh, same herring, but uh, cooked the different way.
6: What about the sushi you've eaten in Denmark? <laughs>
8: <laughs> As a sushi restaurant, um, of course, uh, different. That's sushi also sushi. It's sushi. Yeah, it's
7: but, sushi. But of course,
5: yeah. of course, yeah, but
6: uh, different. The Danes, living on hundreds of islands surrounded by water, mm. are eating actually less and less fish. Is that also an EU issue, or is it a Danish government issue, or is it just bad education amongst the Danes, or are they just
5: obsessed with pork? Is that the, is that the problem? I think it's a very very bad education from, especially my parents, the generation of my parents. And uh, we always had fish, when I was at my grandparents, they were living close to water, but if we had fish at my parents' house, it was 100% the fish fingers, the frozen <laughs> fish fingers. We do have a lot of very, very good fish in Denmark and, and Scandinavia. I think the quality is, for most of it, it's the same quality as Japanese. But the the other whole problem about that is in the in the Euro, e, EU, we need to freeze every fish to serve it raw really so everything you serve here raw has yes. been frozen yes except for the how to say the, the clams and the crustaceans again it's a lack of um, craft it's a lack of uh, intelligence and then we just say then we just make it worse for everybody are there things that you wanted to
6: serve here that you've experienced in Japan that you just think the Danes are not ready for i'm thinking of things like shirako Mm. Uh, like cod sperm.
5: Yeah.
6: Do you serve those kind of maybe more challenging
5: ingredients? Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, we do serve it when it's seasonal and when we can get it. And the same goes with uh, with monkfish liver. Yeah. We try to push our fishermen every week to uh, to to get it first. But they're throwing it away otherwise. Yeah. Aren't. Yeah. Oh my Even though that we want to pay like the double of what a tail it costs, it just it's yeah. just a yeah. They don't understand it. Which I, I think this whole sushi Anabat project is going to take many many years. Like they did with the Noma, it's not gonna be finished in five or ten years. Maybe it's gonna be twenty or forty years before we we see monkfish liver everywhere and uh, cut sperm everywhere. Because I think it's delicacy. If you treat it correct and if you serve it correct, it's hundred percent a delicacy.
6: Well, I do hope sushi and abba is around for at least another twenty years. But maybe the Danes will learn a little more about handling, preparing, and eating great seafood before that. For Monocle in Copenhagen, I'm Michael Booth.
1: Thanks, Michael. You're listening to The Menu. (music) Grocery stores around the world all have a roughly similar layout. Usually, fresh foods like fruit, veg, meat, seafood and dairy line the perimeter, while packaged goods typically fill the aisles in the middle. But that's where the similarities end. Every culinary tradition has its own staples that deserve more shelf space. In the case of Japanese foods, that means an aisle just for soy sauce and entire refrigerated cases dedicated to mushrooms and tofu, not how the typical North American supermarket is organised. But that is what you'll find at Wajimaya, a third-generation family-run grocery store in Seattle that has become a beacon for anyone with a taste for Japanese cooking. Monocles Gregory Scruggs grabbed a trolley and went shopping. He brings us this report.
3: I've just entered Uwajimaya, the flagship location here in Seattle, uh, looking for a little bit of Japanese culinary flavor to add to my kitchen for the week. The first thing I see, I mean, is, is sort of classically American for this time of year. They have jack o' lantern pumpkins ahead of Halloween. But the options start to get a little more interesting uh, quite quickly. In the produce aisle, I see some durian, rambutan, jackfruit, mangosteen, a lot of uh, Southeast Asian fruits not nearly as, uh, as common on North American grocery shelves, as well as an enormous mushroom display. Uh, mushrooms are, are given their own special refrigerated case here. Inaki, lion's mane, shiitake wood ear, a whole variety of fresh mushrooms. And as I start to head down some of the dry good aisles, uh, just looking at soy sauce alone is an entire row with, I couldn't even begin to count the number of varieties here of soy sauce. We're looking at extra dark, light, tamari, organic, light sodium, sweet, some enormous... Jugs and others, smaller, more specialty bottles. Sharing space, of course, with all of the mirin, the rice vinegars, the cooking sake, and at least a dozen different types of furikake rice seasoning. As I round the corner now, heading toward the seafood department, I well, I'm passing, uh, of course, some refrigerated cases filled with tofu of all different firmnesses, consistencies, and textures, as well as an ample-sized miso case, so lots of miso paste on hand. There is a sashimi counter where some fresh salmon is being cut, expertly sliced as I watch. How did this Japanese food emporium come to be? For the answer to that question, I tracked down President and CEO, Denise Moriguchi.
0: Wajimaya was started actually 95 years ago by my grandparents. My grandfather, Fujimatsu Moriguchi, was an immigrant from Japan. And he came here and opened up this business, and he started by selling fish cakes and other Japanese food staples to the laborers working in the area. So people were working at like mining camps, fishing camps, timber camps, and he was selling Japanese foods to them. They started in Tacoma, and uh, they had a store there before the war. During World War II, my family was sent to Tule Lake, California, um, and so they lost their business and um, were, you know, were sent there um, for several years. And uh, after the war, they moved to Seattle, and they reopened their business. And so we are in the Chinatown International District of Seattle, just blocks away from where our store was opened in 1945. Wajimaya started, as I mentioned, by selling Japanese food really to Japanese people, but over the course of time we've become a Pan-Asian store and we sell to a wide base of customers.
3: Now, looking around the store here, it's more than just Uwajimaya. There's a food court, there's also some other retail businesses. Can you tell me how have you and I'm looking specifically here at a at a Royce chocolate, the, the famous chocolatier from Hokkaido? I know you also have Puff Pastry Beard Papa and a branch of Kinokuniya Books, the very popular Japanese bookstore. How do you attract those household Japanese brands into your store, and how do you make those arrangements to amplify some of the experience for the customer?
0: Yeah, I think we've been very fortunate to establish these relationships with these well-known Japanese brands, and I think it's just through our proven history and the fact that we have so many customers coming through our doors every day and we do attract a number of Japanese national or people that have come from China, Taiwan, Korea that know these brands and so I think just through having a strong customer base that they they see the value in, in being part of we call it the Wajamaya village because we're more than just a grocery store as you mentioned here we do have a food court, and we want to offer um, really an experience more than just being a singular grocery store. The Japanese government kind of supports brands in Japan trying to branch out and kind of test the markets. Um, we call them busan tens, food fairs. And so we work with different prefectures, Aomori, Sapporo, Hokkaido, and they, um, I think the local governments there or with the different organizations here, like bring in product from those prefectures and they can kind of test the local market or the I guess the western market, the US market and they get a good sense of how it would be if they exported their product.
3: I decided to check out some of those brands for myself and inquire with one of Uwajima's snack specialists. Hi, excuse me, I have a question. Could you help me out?
4: Yeah, sure. What was it?
3: Um, I'm getting a little peckish, uh, a little ready for some snacks.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Like, are you looking for a savory or a sweet?
3: Let's start off with savory. Maybe the sweet tooth will come in a little bit later. All
4: right. Are you familiar with the rice crackers? I have this Ogaki Kakinotani regular if you don't like spicy. But if you want the spicy, the most popular is we had the hot flavor of it, which is Kakinotani hot. We have a norimaki, which is Shirakiko norimaki rice cracker with seaweed, which is the rice cracker wrapped in seaweed.
3: And these ones over here, actually, I feel like I often come through. And these rice crackers, the Himemaru, are not on the shelves. Are these a top seller?
4: Yeah, the Himemaru, the Amanoya Himemaru regular, is the one that it's so popular. We ordered like 10 ks it will just gone like in two days.
3: And what about? Oh gosh, this looks like a uh, image of a of a sea urchin, of an uni. Is this a uni flavored rice
4: cracker? Yes, it is. This Honda rice cracker kino. Oni-sen is the uni flavor or the sea urchin flavor. <laughs> All
3: right, so I think my sweet tooth is starting to kick in. Uh, right. What can we do by way of something with a little more in the sugar side of, of the snack world?
4: So we have some mochi. So they have multiple flavor. The most popular is the Sikikina Fukuromi mochi and Sakura mochi. We have Meiji chocolate kinoko Noyama, which is popular as they call chokorums because they're shaped like mushrooms in a box. Yeah, this is so popular. Do
3: they, do they taste like mushrooms or they're just shaped like mushrooms?
4: They're shaped mushroom and at the same time chocolate. People love it.
1: Gregory Scruggs there. You're listening to The Menu. It is often said that a good cup of tea can solve anything. Sometimes it can even close the gap between nations. That's what's happening in Slovenia, where Japanese diplomatic efforts to forge a closer relationship have included food and drink as a way to brew mutual appreciation. The Japanese Food Partner Programme has been conspicuously successful when it comes to tea, as Monocle's man in Ljubljana, Guy Deloney, was delighted to discover.
5: Tamariokucha, green tea.
7: There's a little bit of Japan here on the riverside in Ljubljana because this is the first cup of tea of the morning. A draft of Tamariokucha from a tea house called Chainitsa Galus. And the tea that they serve here uh, comes from around the corner in the old town. There's a, a tea shop that I frequent, simply called Cha, and you can get all sorts of teas there including many selections from Japan and the person who knows all about them is Tanya Benedict Bokal Uh, Tanya first of all the
9: Tamaryoku cha what is it you particularly like about this one this one so I like that it's a bit sweeter it's a bit of higher quality than the regular Japanese green tea and it's not like everyday tea so it's for maybe special occasions.
7: When I'm in your shop and you talk about the, 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 the teas, you're clearly hugely passionate about them and you know a lot about them. How did this passion for tea erupt inside you?
9: When I started growing up, I started um, reading Eastern literature about Je- Japan, about Tibet, about countries like that and the way they look at life really that really um, surprised me. So at that point I also started looking at what's native to them. So green tea, sushi, <laughs> that's what we like here.
7: I noticed in the, the window of Cha there is a sticker there saying your Japanese food partner. Yeah. There's obviously some effort here by Japan to promote itself through its food and drink products, including tea.
9: Yeah, I think that maybe it was the other way around that uh, a lot of our Japanese customers started going here, um, native Japan people, and started recognizing that we actually sell uh, high quality green teas. Um, They were really surprised. So when we broadened our collection yeah, range, uh, some really high-quality teas started coming in, like Shincha or Gyokuro. Those are first-class teas where even Japanese people stand in lines for the first picking. And so we had that here, and I think that they maybe recognized that it would be a good partnership. It is a gateway or a way in to a culture. We are, I think, people uh, like to experience culture through drinks, foods and music. I think that all of those three are very essential to grasping the culture.
7: The full title of the food and drink diplomacy effort is the Japanese Food and Ingredient Supporter Programme, and it's been enhancing connections between Japan and Slovenia for the past three years. With a cup in hand, perhaps we could call it diplomacy.
8: Hi, I'm Hiroaki Kawakami, uh, working for the uh, Japan Embassy in Slovenia. I'm working for basically political economic issue, but especially in the realm of food and uh, food-related culture. Japanese food culture is deeply uh, rooted in the culture as a whole itself. Our government, Japanese government, uh, led by Ministry of agriculture, is quite eager Uh, Currently, to promote Japanese food, drinks, and alcohol beverages uh, abroad. This is because simply our shrinking home market. We have to acquire and attract foreign people for a market uh, so that uh, we can support domestic producers and also Japanese food companies. And so, this is the very uh, easiest way to ask those uh, already exist here uh, to be a kind of satellite. Office of the Japanese Food and Culture. So what sort of successes have you, have you seen? What's pleased you the most? Up to now, there is uh, 12 places uh, registered, certified, and they are all passionate to share their knowledge in terms of uh, Japanese food, uh, in uh, you know, the food and uh, surrounding cultures. In terms of the diplomatic aspect of it and
7: the relationships between the peoples and the countries, what sort of impact do you think this, this program has had on that and have you, what changes have you seen in
8: those sort of relations between Japan and Slovenia? Slovenian people are originally very eager to burn Asian content, including Japan. For example, for younger generation, there is a anime and manga, which is mm, super common here, uh, needless to say. The food aspect is already very common, but not easy to uh, experience in person without this kind of uh, certificated places, restaurant uh, or retailers. So since the uh, initiation of this program, I said it's 2018, uh, the first RAS certificate was made in 2020. We've been very lucky that uh, they uh, themselves quite proactively introducing their uh, customers, including younger generation, uh, to uh, provide a genuine dish and also insight. I would say that I basically focus to the passion of the owner and chef.
7: Back on Ljubljana's riverside, the pot is still half full and Tanya is ready to do her part to brew connections through the power of tea.
9: I take pleasure in introducing Slovenian people to the tea that I really like, but I have to see a person on the other side that is also slightly um, deranged in that way, if I can say it like that. So, but when I, see, when I do see an enthusiast I, and when they tell me what they like, of course I will try to give them what I think they might like. So maybe that is what the soft power... Is yeah. The
7: soft power for me at the moment is having another cup of this Tama Ryokucha. This is Guy Delaunay from Monocle in Ljubljana.
1: Guy Delaunay there with that report. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at twenty hundred London time. That's midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin off show Food Neighborhoods for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This program was produced by Monica Lillis and our studio engineer was Jack Jewis. Once again, we finished this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Odorico by Vondi. Thanks for listening and until next week.